This morning, we're going to be dealing with one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. It's really one of the most famous stories in all of world literature, the story of David and Goliath. There have been many sermons written about this story, many Sunday school lessons taught about it, many VBS skits written about it. I remember even as a young man at Vacation Bible School fashioning my own sling, going to get my rocks so I could be like David and, you know, maybe pelting my friends in the head with them, thinking they were Goliath. It was a fun thing to imagine and think about all that we see take place in this incredible story. But what's most exciting to me in preaching 1 Samuel 17 today is the opportunity it presents for us to to center rightly on what God is teaching us about his saving work through it. You see, this passage is not just giving us confidence to face our own giants. That's not the point of this passage. Rather, ultimately, this passage is is meant to teach us to have confidence in God and ultimately to show us the greater salvation that he will and has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus who alone can slay our greatest enemy. So what I want you to do this morning is I want you to approach this text with fresh eyes, fresh ears, to to not think you've already heard it the way that it's supposed to be heard. And to not think it's already taught you everything that it can teach you, even though it is familiar. I want you to see this morning the incredible salvation of God for his people. In the time of David specifically. But then I also want you to see a greater salvation. A greater victory. A greater hero against a greater enemy because... If we fail to see this greater significance, we will fail to miss the largest lesson of all of Scripture, and that is the great work of Jesus Christ himself. You see, the story of David and Goliath is meant to paint a picture for us of how God will orchestrate our salvation in Jesus in the face of our greatest enemy. So what's the background as we dive into 1 Samuel 17, what's happening in the course of the history of the people of Israel? We see in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 17 that Israel are, Israel's arch enemies, those dreaded Philistines, have once again gathered for battle. And they are disputing with Israel over the rights to a place called the Valley of Allah. And it's of importance to both Israel and the Philistines because of its Economic and military significance. It's strategic location for both peoples to thrive. And the setting is pretty dramatic. You can imagine it. There's there's two mountains on either side of the valley. The, The armies have gathered on top of these mountains, and they are awaiting the time where they descend in masses the mountain to the valley to engage each other in combat for control over the land. And as the Philistines prepare to engage the Israelites in battle, they choose to employ a a unique military tactic we see in verse 4. They choose to engage Israel with a champion, a champion, a, a representative fighter to represent all of 
the armies. Now, this is not an uncommon practice at this time. It is uncommon in the story of Scripture. We don't see it very often that one person represents an entire army, but that is the, the source of the drama that's taking place in 1 Samuel 17. On occasion, competing armies would choose their greatest warrior, their champion, to represent them in battle against the champion of the other army, and the winner would win for the entire army, and the loser would suffer defeat for the entire army as well. Here's what's a big deal for Israel. The Philistine champion is a hoss of a man. He is a big dude, this guy named Goliath, intimidating in every sense. Later in the passage, we see Saul tell us, or tell David and us consequently, that Goliath had been fighting since he was a youth. He's experienced. He's killed a lot of people, and he's big. I mean, really big. Our text suggests that he could be over nine feet tall. Some other variances suggest just under seven feet, but regardless of how tall you make him, he's head and shoulders above everyone else, and he's strong. His armor alone weighs 125 pounds, and he's wearing it like his pajamas, just, you know, running down the mountain to the field in order to engage with battle. And so Goliath comes forward on behalf of the Philistines, and he challenges the entire Israelite army. He lays down the conditions in verses 8 to 10 for their battle. He stood, he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Goliath, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and you shall serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that I may fight or that we may fight together. And when the Israel army, Israelite army, hears this giant of a man throwing down the gauntlet and saying, somebody come out here and fight me, the Bible says in verse 11 that they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid, which is a little bit shocking. I mean, maybe not since we are familiar with the heart of, men, of man, but it should be a little shocking because of all that has happened to this point in the history of Israel. This is not the first time that Israel has faced a threat greater than they thought themselves able to overcome, right? I mean, we've seen over and over again in the history of Israel that God has miraculously delivered his people against enemies they had no business beating. Egypt, to the time of Joshua and Judges walking into the land, overcoming fortified cities, greater peoples, and yet, in this moment, as they stand before Goliath and they see all that he is, they forget. They're overcome by fear. They don't remember all that he has done and all that God has promised. In many ways, they're still suffering from the same thing that Samuel suffered with last week. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, when, when Samuel was consumed with the outward appearance, it looks like the people of God are still concerned with the outward appearance, not remembering that there's a greater power than just what they can see. But then here comes this young guy, David, right? Brash, fresh off of his day of anointing when God promised him that he would be king. He was sent to the battle by his father to check on his brothers. And when he arrives, he hears 
Goliath, once again, offer the same challenge he's been offering for 40 days. Who's going to come out and fight me? Israel, servants of Saul. Who are you going to send out and fight me so we can get this thing over with? And he sees the army again responding as they did the first time. Verse 24, they run. They literally run away because they are afraid. And Saul tries to offer incentives just to get somebody, anybody, to stand and fight this giant. Money. Anybody want money? I'll give you a whole lot of money if you'll go out and fight Goliath. If that doesn't work, I'll give you my daughter. Now, let's not talk about the ethics of that right now, but I'm going to offer my daughter so you can join the royal family. Anything that I have is yours if you will just go out and face Goliath. And David's surprised, to say the least. Surprised at what he is seeing. He asks in verse 26, now, what all is being offered to the man that faces and slays this giant? And, and why are we, God's people, afraid of this man who defies the armies of the living God? His, older, his oldest brother, Eliab, hears what David has said and he rebukes him. Rebukes him for having that kind of audacity, which just you know, affirms God's not choosing of him earlier to be the king. But David's not discouraged. In fact, he moves to encourage all of God's people. He walks to Saul and he says this in verse 32, let no man's heart fail because of Goliath. Your servant will go out and fight with this Philistine. Your servant. Isn't it interesting? Everybody's consumed with fear. The king himself, right? is consumed with fear. The very king, not long earlier, was described as a great warrior who he himself stood head and shoulders above all of Israel. And yet he's consumed with fear such that his servant now is the one willing to go out and fight. Initially, Saul resists him. He says to David, you're too young. You're too inexperienced compared to Goliath. He's going to wipe the floor with you, boy. But consider how David responds to Saul in verses 34 to 37. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard, I struck him and I killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, now listen to who David gets credit to here. The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to him, go, and the Lord be with you. Now Saul tries to give David his armor, to protect him, but it was too big. David couldn't move in that armor. And besides, he had something greater protecting him. But this is where the story gets bonkers. Okay, this is where it gets really crazy. David goes and prepares for battle, and here's what he does to prepare for battle. He gets a sling, and he goes and gets five stones. He's taken stones to a sword fight, a little outmatched, right? I mean, 
In every possible way, it looks like defeat is about to befall the people of God. But these stones are exactly what David needs. He takes the stones, he takes the sling, and he goes out to meet the enemy of his people. And let's read this encounter together in verses 41 to 51 in 1 Samuel 17. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And this is where the trash-talking begins on the field. Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. But then David said to the Philistine, Oh yeah? Well, I'm rubber and you're glue. No. (laughs) David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. Pretty impressive things. But guess what? I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword, not with spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle. Unlike everybody else, who have been running from the battle, David runs toward it to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank in his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. So David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his own sword, and drew it out of its sheath and killed him, and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. No longer God's people fleeing. The Philistines now were fleeing. Who's laughing now, Saul? Not you, because you're dead. And you don't have a head. Friends, this is a stunning, stunning victory. The Bible wants you to see David is outmatched in every possible way. Experience, stature, weapons, armor, everything should tell you that David is going to lose. And yet, God uses him to lead his people into victory. He uses him to deliver his people from their shame. He's taken away their reproach. And not because of his power, not because of his skill, not because of his weapons, but because of his God. Even now, I hope your confidence is, is growing in the Lord, right? I mean, I, probably like saying to your neighbor, your, your spouse, hold me back. I'm ready to go fight for the Lord. Because if, if David, if God can use David to defeat Goliath, then what on earth can God's people not defeat? But I want to be careful here. Because while that is a good response that we see coming from this text, we got to make sure that it's rightly directed. That, that our, our confidence in the Lord is a confidence placed in the right way. Because 
There are people who have abused this text, and there are people who have not applied it rightly. And so it's, it's important for us to make sure that we are understanding exactly what it is that God is promising us and teaching us from the text. I think there are two, level, two layers to the story, two levels of understanding that we should seek to engage as we think about the significance for us of 1 Samuel 17, both of which overlap to point us to the story of Christ. Here's the first level. At one level... This story, 1 Samuel 17, is a story of fear over faith. It's a story of of faith in God over the fear of man. And in this way, David is set as an example to us, as a faithful brother, challenging us to live as God's people in faith rather than fear. You cannot miss as you read through this text, that the Bible wants you to see over and over and over again that God's people, when standing before Goliath, are consumed with fear. Verse 11, verse 24, the sense is none of them think that victory is possible. All of them are arrested with their fear because of what they see before them. They do not believe they can win. And again, this includes Saul, who was meant to be Israel's champion, and yet he's doing everything he can to find someone else to go out on his behalf. You see, the Spirit of God had left him, and he had no confidence to lead God's people into battle. But this is intentionally contrasted with David, whom now the Spirit of God rests upon. David is not overwhelmed by fear, but rather he is overwhelmed by faith in his God. He knows that God is greater than Goliath. Why? Why is it that David is able to stand in faith when others run in fear? Well, remember his interaction with Saul. Verses 34 to 37. Do you remember what he said? Your servant, he used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion, a bear, they took a lamb from the flock, I'd go after them. I would deliver them out of their mouth. And if they came up against me, I would kill them. Verse 36. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37, David said to Saul, the Lord who delivered me, wasn't David, right? David didn't think that it was his own ability that allowed him to face the lion, to face the bear, maybe occasionally tigers. It's more Wizard of Oz, I guess, in the Bible. But It wasn't David that could do this. Who was doing it? God. God was the one who allowed David to see this kind of victory, to see this kind of deliverance. And he says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, David's faith came from a spirit-empowered remembering. A remembering of God's past miraculous works, a remembering of God's promises to his people. David had seen God protect him before. David had seen God deliver him before. He knew that God was not finished with this people. He knew that God was not finished with him, and he trusted that what God had done before, he would do again. He places his faith in God, not his ability, not in his weapons, Not in his experience before Goliath, but in his God. And this should have been the response of Israel. Because as we've seen, 
They had a, a greater history than even David had of deliverance. Egypt, the time of Joshua and the judges, victory after victory after victory that they could not have done in and of themselves, indicating that God was greater than any force this world could throw at them. Not to mention the promise of God, that God told them he was going to deliver this land to them. Deuteronomy 9, 1 to 3, Hear, O Israel, you're going to cross over the Jordan today. You're going to go in and dispossess nations. Listen, you're going to go dispossess nations that are greater and mightier than you. They should have known this already. You're going to go up against people that are greater, mightier than you. Cities that are great, fortified all the way up to heaven. A people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you've, had it, you've heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. And he will drive them out and make them perish quickly. This is what the Lord has promised to you. They already, God's already told them they're going to be Goliaths. But I'm going to defeat them on your behalf. But in that moment, when Goliath stands in all of his might directly before him, everything that God had promised, everything God had done, they forget. And they are consumed with what's right in front of them. They are, they are blinded to God's faithfulness by the threat of Goliath, paralyzed by fear. But David, he remembered he remembered the promises of God. He remembered the faithfulness of God. And because of that, he was moved to faith. If God has done all of this, and if he's promised all of that, then i got to trust that he will prove faithful again. Church, what a challenge to us today, right? To be a people of faith, not a people of fear. Let me ask you a question. In moments of difficulty, where is your focus? In moments of danger, what are you clinging to? Because what you focus on will determine how you respond, and your response matters. Because it says something about the God you placed your trust in. Is he better than that? Is he greater than that that you're facing? Do you trust him to provide what he has promised, even when it seems like it's not coming. This passage is a challenge to God's people to be a people of faith, and not random faith, faith in their God and his promises. We are called to have the kind of faith that moves us to action, even when everyone else is paralyzed by fear. Now, I want to be careful here, okay? This is where we get into some of that that dangerous application. What this passage is not saying is that God will give you the strength to overcome absolutely any difficulty you face. We got people claiming this passage when the line's too long in the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A, right? Like, God, if you can use David to kill Goliath, you can suspend the screaming of my children in the 15 minutes it's going to take to get to this drive-thru. That's not the way to properly apply this text. 
Recognize the threat that Goliath represents is a direct to specific promises of God that he's already made. Specific things that he has tied himself to. God promised his people this land. God promised his people victory. God promised David that he would be king. And as David stands before Goliath, all of these promises are on the line. All of these things that God attached himself to are on the line. In reality, this battle is not between David and Goliath, but between God and the threat that's posed to his promises. And David knows this. He sees this greater reality, and he knows that what God has promised, he will uphold. He will do it. David shows incredible faith by trusting that if God has promised it, he will give it, no matter what power of man comes against it. No matter what power of this world comes against it. So this this passage is teaching us to have a faith rooted in the promises of God. And when when we face danger, when we face difficulty, to trust, to trust in God, to have faith in him, knowing that he will act always for his glory and our good. The battle truly belongs to the Lord. That's one sense. It's one level of this passage that we should learn from as God's people. But there's another layer as well. Another dimension that begins pointing us to the greater work of Jesus Christ himself. Because much of what happens in the story of David and Goliath, what happens in the pages of of 1 Samuel 17, much of what happens here is meant to prepare us to understand in greater ways the work that God will do for us through Jesus. The greater salvation that he will accomplish on our behalf through Christ. This story, the other level, points us to a greater hero. It begins building the foundation of a greater hero. There's a a clear picture in this passage, in the story of David, of a greater victory that Jesus will and has secured on our behalf, fulfilling the promises of God to us. This picture that God paints is a, a story of salvation, a picture of salvation that all of us, all of us need. You see, Jesus, in the story of Scripture, is shown to be our greater champion who has conquered a greater enemy and has secured a greater victory. What we learn about God's saving action in 1 Samuel 17 is meant to prepare us to understand the greater victory he will accomplish through Jesus, who is our greater champion, who has conquered a greater enemy and has secured a greater victory. Now let's let's draw these parallels out individually to help us understand how what happened in 1 Samuel 17 teaches us about what God has done and will do through Jesus. Firstly, Jesus is our greater champion. Our greater champion. The representative battle that's found in 1 Samuel 17 is a unique feature in the story of Scripture, but it prepares us to understand that on occasion it is possible for one man to represent an entire people in battle. David steps forward as a champion, and his fate will be the people's fate. If he wins, Israel wins. If he loses, Israel loses. Now, he might not be the champion they chose, but he was the one God chose. He was the anointed one, the Messiah set apart for a moment just like 
this. And astonishingly, to everyone's surprise, despite everything that's coming against David, the anointed one set apart by God, this future King David, brings about this unlikely victory. Does any of that sound familiar to you? Does any of that language help us describe what it is that God has done for us in Jesus? Friends, you see, we've been involved in a battle, a war that has consumed this earth, a spiritual battle, and the dispute is not over a valley, one piece of land between two peoples. It's consuming all of creation. And hear me this morning, our very souls are at stake. And because of our own brokenness, we're too weak to fight. We're consumed with fear in the midst of this battle. And we needed someone to come and fight on our behalf. We needed a champion who could represent us in this battle, whose fate we would be tied to, whose fate we would, we would willingly tie our own fate to. Another anointed one, a Messiah set apart by God for this moment. And the scripture stirring our hearts to ask the question, is there someone like David? Is there someone greater than David who could help deliver us from this battle in the same way that God used David to deliver his people from that battle in 1 Samuel 17? As we move to the text of scripture and as we get to the gospels, the Bible resoundingly says, yes, there is someone. There is someone that God has set apart. There is an anointed one, a Messiah, ready to deliver you from your enemy, and his name is Jesus. Greater Messiah. He's come from heaven to stand in the gap to fight for a people who could not fight for themselves. He is our greater champion. And let me just tell you this morning, if Jesus is fighting for you, you're going to be okay. There's no power greater than the power that God has displayed through his son, Jesus Christ. And this champion, he's come to fight a greater enemy. As incredible as the victory is, as incredible as the work that God does through David on Israel's behalf is in 1 Samuel 17. Friends, we have a greater enemy that we need deliverance from. Goliath was a striking warrior. He would readily strike fear in the heart of anyone who approached him. I promise you, in my own flesh, with this body of a reader, if I got in front of Goliath and it was a, a battle of hand-to-hand combat, it would not take long for him to do me in, right? I would rightly be afraid if it was in my own strength. But friends, our enemy now is greater. The enemy that we wrestle with now is even greater, so much greater than Goliath. We stand on a battlefield against the enemies of sin and death. There is a lion roaring around right now seeking to get us in his jaws and take us to death, to consume us. We've been enslaved to sin. And we are Condemned because of that enslavement. And it's important to recognize that in our own strength, there is nothing, nothing we can do to overcome those enemies. Not even a chance. It's possible 
that if someone in the Israelite army had gotten up the courage to go out and fight Goliath, they could have won, right? It's possible. If Saul had actually done what he was supposed to do, it's possible that he could have had a lucky day and killed Goliath. But hear me, there's no chance for us. No chance for us to defeat sin and death apart from the work of God. And that's why this greater champion who's faced a greater enemy has brought about a greater victory. Yes, Christ is an unlikely hero, a surprising hero, born in a nowhere town to nowhere people, not in a palace, but in a manger. But this unlikely hero, this greater hero than we could have ever imagined, has secured a greater victory over our enemies of sin and death. And his weapon, even more stunning than David's, not a sling, but a cross. His victory was not apparent As everyone thought, he died. He did die. But only three days later to rise up and cut the head off of sin and death. What's stunning about the victory of Jesus is that initially it looks like defeat, but his death was required in order to show his unmatched power. He surrendered to death for a moment to overcome it for all of eternity. Praise be to God. And this victory was not temporary. See, the Philistine army didn't go away. They were still a threat to Israel. But friends, when Jesus claimed victory over sin and death, it was not just for a moment, but for all eternity. 1 Corinthians 15, 54-57. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass a saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death! Where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, I know we're not Pentecostal in here, but I'm hoping that you need a seatbelt to stay in your seat when you hear what it is that God has just promised us. That through Jesus Christ, a victory we had no business experiencing is ours. Sin and death, the things that strike the greatest fear in our hearts, wiped away by the glorious work of God through Jesus. And now his death is a reminder of our victory. It does seem odd, right, that that death would be something that we celebrate. That death is a reminder of victory. But yet that's a common thing that happened in this time. You see, when David killed Goliath, what does he do? He cuts off his head. And then, verse 53, the people of God chase, the Israelites chase the Philistines away. They come back and plunder their camp. And then in verse 54, David took the head of Goliath and brought it to Jerusalem. And then he put the armor of Goliath in his tent. Now, that seems odd, doesn't it? A little barbaric that, you know, you cut off the dude's head and then you take it with you back to Jerusalem, why would you do that? Because, you know, bodies decay. They stink. And every time you walk past that head, it looks worse and it smells worser. Right? But there's an important element here as you consider the death of Goliath. Every time somebody walks by that head, everyone, every time someone smells that stench in Israel, 
what do they remember? Victory. If a Philistine walks by it, they're going to remember defeat. But what is the smell of defeat to one is the smell of victory to another. Think about how that translates to us, friends. We remember the death of Christ, not because he's Goliath in this story, no, but because in remembering his death, we remember the greater death. Because Jesus wasn't the one who really died that day. Yes, he physically died and came back to life, but his death was to show his greater power over sin and death, who when he rose from the dead actually died. And so now when we celebrate the death of Jesus, it's a reminder for us as we, as we smell the aroma of death, as we, as we think about the, the reality of his death to remember who actually died that day, what actually was defeated that day so that he, alive now, can drive us forward in triumphant procession as we read in 2 Corinthians earlier today. Friends, Can you see how in 1 Samuel 17, God began establishing the foundation for us to understand what he would do in Jesus many years later? What we see in 1 Samuel 17 is an incredible salvation, an incredible deliverance, teaching us to live lives of faith rather than fear. But ultimately, God used it to help us understand the greater salvation he would provide for us in Jesus. And what's great now is understanding the work of Christ and how God meant 1 Samuel 17 to help us understand the work of Jesus. We can go back to 1 Samuel 17 and actually read it in a way that is encouraging. Because here's the reality. If, if it was your responsibility on your own to live a life of faith rather than a life of fear, you could not do it. You want to know how I know that? Because there's thousands of years of history in this book of the people of the Old Testament trying to live lives of faith and constantly, constantly, constantly being overwhelmed by fear. Our sinful hearts will not let us have the kind of faith that we need to be the kind of people God has called us to be. But when the Holy Spirit of God rests upon you, when the Holy Spirit of God indwells you, that and that happens when you become a follower of Christ, suddenly what you cannot do in your own strength, you are able to do in his strength. And so the, the calling to be a, the kind of people who live in faith rather than fear is not something that's ominous or too great a burden for us to bear. But we know that we can live in that kind of victory because of the victory that Christ has secured on our behalf. We have the Spirit of God within us to help us remember rightly the promises of God, the work of God, and we can live in that reality. This is good news. Now, how should we respond this morning? How can we as God's people respond to the incredible rich truth that we've seen from this text as it hits all of Scripture? I want to offer three responses this morning. The first is this. Step into the victory of Christ. Some of you in this room have never given your lives to Jesus. Some of you are still consumed by fear. Some of you still have a very real enemy, sin and death, and you will spend an eternity condemned because of your sin. But I want you to hear good news this morning. 
Jesus has secured victory over those things. And he has enabled you through that work to step into his victory. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. I want you to picture this. There's a lion who's come and he's taken you in his mouth. And Jesus is following after that lion and he's got some rocks in his hand and he is pelting that sucker saying, let him or her go. And that lion turned back around and he came after Jesus. But do you know what Jesus did? He killed it to save you from a future of certain death. Here's the question for you. Have you allowed Jesus to do that for you? If not, let's leave it today. In a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to speak with you more about the, the victory, the life that is yours in Christ. For some of you, you may have already given your life to Jesus, but you're not living in that victory. And that leads us to point number two. In light of the victory of Christ, we should be the kind of people who live in faith and not fear. And let me just remind everyone that it's only in the victory of Christ that we are able to live in this kind of faith, right? The Spirit of God is what enables us to look back and remember the promises of God and, and the, the power of God and trust in them, even when it doesn't make sense. It's a supernatural thing to live in faith and to have your faith directed properly at God. So how do we do this? How do we actually put feet to our faith and, and live in this kind of way. And so I was trying to think through a very practical encouragement for us today about when difficulties come our way. Because there's a principle here, right? That in, in moments when you face difficulty, great danger, specifically threatening the promises of God, you have the ability in Christ to walk forward in faith. So how do we actually apply that? So I developed an acrostic this morning, okay? And hopefully it works for us. Um, to help you navigate those moments of fear to move to a place of faith. So we want those moments of difficulty to, to become a time when we can brag on the Lord. Okay, so brag's the acrostic, B-R-A-G, okay? So let's say that you're diagnosed with cancer, okay? Now, at this point, we've, we've come to the principal portion, right? There's not a direct correlation between what happens in 1 Samuel 17 and, and cancer, but there's a principle there that, that we can live in faith even when the world around us says live in fear. So how in a moment when you're diagnosed with cancer or someone you love is diagnosed with cancer, how can you live in faith in that moment? How can you make it a time when you, are, when you brag on the Lord? And this, I think, is a very real um, situation for us to consider because I'm sure all of us in this room have been touched by cancer, someone we know or someone we love or someone maybe here has been diagnosed with cancer. So what is it that we can cling to in this time? Because there have been people who have said, all you got to do is speak against cancer and God's going to give you victory over that. But is that what God's promised, right? So let's think through the brag acrostic for a second. First, you need to be real about the situation, right? When, when difficult things come your way, let's not you know, glance over the difficulty of those realities. Let's be real about what is actually facing us. It's, it was very possible for David to have died on the battlefield. That was a real direct threat to his life. So the act of faith is a real great act of faith because there was actually something on the line, right? There was a threat which only heightens the glory that God will receive. So let's be real about the situation, but in, in giving it a an accounting of that situation, 
Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us remember the promise of God. So we're going to be real about the situation, but then we're going to remember the promises of God. And this is where it's very important for us to actually know the promises of God. So let's consider the cancer situation for a moment. What has God promised you? Has he promised you healing? No. Well, not in this life specifically. He's promised you ultimate healing. He's promised you the possibility of healing, but not a guarantee of healing. What he's promised you is actually something greater. Everyone in this room, everyone in life, is going to feel the brokenness of this world as all the result of sin. And there are going to be several moments in our life where we feel the weight of the sin. We feel the weight of this brokenness. And we have an opportunity in that moment to make a decision to either be overcome by despair or trust that the victory that God began in Christ Jesus, he will carry through completion when every single effect of sin in this world will be overrun by the glory and power of God. That's the promise. And we have the work of God upon the cross to inform that promise so that then we can act on the promise of God. We be real about the situation, we remember the promises of God, and then we act on the promise of God. And we, we do something like this. God, I know that you can heal me if you want to. I'm going to ask you to. Because I would love for you to heal me in this life, but I also recognize that my hope is not only in this life, but in the life that is to come. And I know that you want me to keep my eyes on the greater promise you've secured for me in Jesus, a world free from sin, a world free from disease, a world free from pain. And if you want to use this moment not to heal me to bring you glory, but to carry me to death, even through cancer, in such a way that it brings honor and glory to you, then I'm going to do it. Because that's the victory here. That when everybody else says you should be overwhelmed by fear, I'm not going to be overwhelmed by fear. I'm going to be overwhelmed by faith. So that I can give you all the glory. So let's be real about the situation. Remember the promises of God. Act on the promises of God and give God the glory. And that's how in any situation you face, any difficulty that you face, you can allow it to be a moment to brag on the Lord. You know, sometimes I think our desired response from God in times of difficulty and honestly our teaching on this passage sometimes reveals, too, reveals that we love this world too much because we want God to do it here. But God's not promised that just here. He's promised it hereafter. And finally, not only step into the victory of Christ, be a people of faith, not a people of fear. Let us long for the day that our victory will be fully realized and our champion will return. When all the promises God's made to us will be fully realized, and friends, we won't need faith anymore. We won't need hope anymore. You want to know why? Because it's going to be fully realized. Our victory will be complete. Wherever you are, do you bow your head? Spend some time allow the Holy Spirit to, to move in you and help you know how to respond to this text. Have you stepped into the victory of Christ? If not, let today be the day when you give your life to Jesus. Are you living in the victory of Christ? 
Are you living a life of faith that allows you to brag on the Lord? Or are you constantly overwhelmed by fear? God, you're asking too much of me. God, I can't give that much. God, I can't move there. God, I can't be joyful in this circumstance. What has God promised you? Know the promises of God. Read the word of God. Know the promises of God and stand on them. Act on them in a way that gives God the glory. And finally, may our hearts not long for only peace and healing in this world. May our hearts rightfully long for what God has prepared for us in the next life. Free from all this sin and fully in his presence forever. Father, thank you for the salvation you've given us in Jesus. Salvation we could not have gotten on our own. Because of your work, we want to brag on you now and worship you. Help us to respond as you lead. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You stand, respond as God leads.